In this lecture, we are going to get into the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This is the constitutionalized Bill of Rights that was passed by the UK legislature as part of the Constitution Act 1982. The Constitution Act 1982 both enshrined the Charter in the Canadian constitutional framework, and it also resulted in the patriation of the Canadian Constitution, that is, it gave Canada the right to amend its own constitution pursuant to an amending formula. So today what we're going to get into is first a description of what's in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Then we're going to think about some of the arguments in favor of and against the Charter. In the next episode of today's lecture, we'll talk about when the Charter applies. And in the final episode of today's lecture, we'll talk about limitations on rights including Section 1 and Section 33 of the Charter of Rights. So what is in the Charter of Rights? You might want to have the text of the Charter up, and you can find that through an internet search. So you'll note the first section of the Charter, Section 1, is the Limitations Clause. Ironically enough, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms starts out with the clause that guarantees but also recognizes limitations on the rights described throughout the rest of the document. We're going to talk about Section 1 at length later on in this lecture, so I won't get into it in any depth here, but the provision reads, The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law, as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. The existence of a limitations clause limiting the rights is controversial in and of itself, and we'll talk about that controversy. And we'll also get into the specifics of how this limitations clause is interpreted and administered by the courts. So that's section one, that is an important clause, and it's the guarantee and limitation on the rights. You then move into section two, and section two is an enormously important clause. It is the fundamental freedoms clause, where we say, the charter says, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of association. Moving through the document, you'll see in sections 3 to 5, certain democratic rights are guaranteed. In section 6, certain mobility rights are guaranteed. And then you see another key section, section 7. Now, section 7 is part of the legal rights component, sections 7 through 14, which guarantee certain rights that are applicable generally in relation to the state's power over individuals. In essence, the ability of the executive and the legislature to wield their power over individuals within Canada. So you see section 7. It sets out, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And we'll talk next lecture at length about section 7. It's one of the most important sections of the Charter. You then see sections 8 and 9. These deal most directly with policing. 
Section 8 is a freedom against unreasonable search and seizure. Fundamentally, this is a protection of privacy. And Section 9 deals with the right to not be arbitrarily detained. Section 10 sets out rights upon arrest or detention. This includes the right to be informed of why you're being arrested, the right to instruct counsel upon your arrest, and the right to come before a court for a determination of the legality of your arrest. And then section 11, you have these rights enshrined in the charter that relate to criminal process, trial within a reasonable time, not to be compelled to be a witness in a proceeding against yourself, presumption of innocence, these types of things. You have cruel and unusual punishment, a bar on that, a right against self-incrimination, and a right to an interpreter in a court process. So these are all these rights in relation to the legal process. These are legal rights, with the important one for our class being Section 7, Sections 8 through 14 being extremely important for criminal law purposes. Then we get the next right that we're going to talk about at some length, Section 15. This is the equality right, and we're going to talk about that right also in the next class. Then we see language rights in Sections 16 to 23. Then we see an important section, section 24, about the enforcement of rights. Section 24 has two components. One gives the court a broad discretion to craft a remedy when someone's had their rights infringed. Section 24.2 deals with the exclusion of evidence which has been obtained in violation of someone's charter rights. You see in sections 25 through 31 some general provisions concerning primarily how the charter is to be interpreted and ensuring the charter is not used to limit other rights. Section 32 deals with who the charter applies to, which is an issue we're going to get into in depth in this portion of the lecture. And then section 33 is another component we're going to talk about today and a um, very controversial thing. The legislature can suspend the operation temporarily of many of the charter rights in relation to a particular piece of legislation. This is called the override provision. And we'll talk about it shortly. So you see here what's in the charter. It's these 34 sections, the 34th merely being the official citation of the charter being described. And you often hear about the Constitution Act 1982 as being synonymous with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I'm sure if you listen carefully to my podcasts, I have at some point made that mistake too. It's very easy to do that. But only the first 34 sections of the Constitution Act 1982 are the Charter. There are other important provisions in the Constitution Act 1982, including for our class's purposes, two that are extremely important. Section 35 guarantees the rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada. And it's a, a simply worded section. It says, the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. And then there's a definition given of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, which includes Indian, Inuit, and Métis. The term Indian can have pejorative or negative contexts. And so it's not the term 
that is ordinarily used to talk about Canada's First Nations, rather First Nations, Aboriginal persons, Indigenous persons, these are more preferred terms. However, because it is used in the Constitution, I will use the term Indian in this lecture at times, and that is not in any way intended to be disrespectful. You notice, though, that because Section 35 is outside of the Charter, it's not expressly limited by Section 1. Section 1 says, The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law. Well, that Section 1 is tied to the rights in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Section 35 is outside of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So the question arises, a question we're going to look at in depth again in about a week. Does that mean that the Section 35 rights don't have an analogous limit? It's an interesting question that arises because of the structure of the Constitution Act 1982 as including the first 34 sections within the Charter, but the 35th and beyond sections outside of the Charter. I won't say more about Section 35 because we'll have two full classes on that section, more or less. The other provision from the Constitution Act 1982 that's important to look at is Section 52. And this is the provision that enshrines the Constitution as the supreme law of Canada and in effect constitutionalizes and mandates the process of judicial review of legislation for constitutional purposes. The provision reads, The Constitution of Canada is the supreme law of Canada, and any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is, to the extent of the inconsistency, of no force or effect. You see then, Section 52 also importantly defines what is the Constitution of Canada, and it includes the Constitution Act 1982, referred to as the Canada Act, including this Act, and also the Acts referred to in the Schedule. And if you look at the Schedule to the Constitution Act 1982, you can see the various pieces of legislation that are part of the Constitution. It includes the Constitution Act 1867 that we've spent a fair amount of time going through. It includes the Manitoba Act that we will talk about in some depth when we get to the Manitoba Métis case. It includes the pieces of legislation, of United Kingdom legislation, that bring other provinces or territories into Canada. And it includes these various acts listed, which amended and changed various provisions of other constitutional acts. So generally speaking, when you think of the Constitution of Canada, you're thinking of the Constitution Act 1867 and 1982, but you want to remember the schedule because there are other pieces of legislation, other pieces of imperial British legislation that are explicitly also part of the Constitution and of the same stature. There's not a hierarchy once something is in the Constitution. And of course, we saw that in relation to the Charter Challenge to the rules of secession, to the rules about who could become the next monarch of England, and by extension, Canada. So that's just a brief overview of what is in the Charter. What isn't in the Charter? There's no right to property. 
There are no positive economic or social rights. There's no right to housing, health care, or income. There's no general right to privacy, although the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure has a strong privacy component, and indeed its essence is to protect reasonable expectations of privacy. There's no explicit environmental rights. So the Charter, while a strong protector of, of rights in Canada, no doubt, is not as strong as some other constitutional Bill of Rights on its face. It has that Section 1, that limitations, which some other Bill of Rights, Bills of Rights, don't have. It doesn't extend to property. It doesn't extend positive rights. It doesn't have environmental rights. It doesn't have a broad general privacy right. But we will talk a bit about some of these limitations and the reason for them as we go through our lecture on the Charter. Why was there a Charter passed? Well, that's a bit of legal history that's beyond the scope of this class. It's been a, it was a long time coming, the move for constitutional reform in Canada, and the strong desire to patriate the Constitution, to no longer have to go to England every time the Constitution was, be, was to be amended, had a long history and a, a lot of support in Canada. Some of the arguments that were made in favor of the Constitution and the Charter were that um, judges can protect minority rights better than legislators. And this is the idea that if you constitutionalize protection for minority rights, they will go to the judiciary, who isn't beholden to the will of the majority. And that's a problem with majority rule, is that it can result in discrimination against minorities. So entrusting minority protection with the judges takes it away from the majoritarian legislator. There's also a strong argument made that Canada... As a big country, a diverse country, with a, a relatively recent history, apart from its First Nations, needed a constitutionalized Bill of Rights to unite the country, to express a shared set of values. But there wasn't unanimous agreement a charter was necessary. Some people said there's no need for a charter. There's no widespread abuse of rights. The judges are doing a good job of protecting people within Canada, and other people thought it was a political ploy by the Prime Minister of the time, Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, of course, to strengthen his power and to increase his popularity. There's also a concern that historically, justice may not be best achieved through the courts, that litigation is expensive, and that the legislatures have in fact done much to help disadvantage and minority groups, despite the fact that they're run by the majority. Perhaps the argument that is held the most consistent weight is the idea that the charter and the elevation of the judiciary is bad for democracy. Judges are unelected and big social questions move out of the legislators' realm and into the judiciary. And there's something to be said for this argument in the sense that legislators are always reluctant to grapple with big social questions. And so you'll see these issues that fester for a very long time without any legislative action on them, despite that they may even have popular support amongst the country. If there's a judiciary who's willing to make the hard decisions on issues that we're going to talk about, like the rights of sex workers, medically assisted suicide, this gives the legislators 
an excuse to not grapple with these very politically charged and difficult questions. So there's a, a feeling that the judges take this jurisdiction. The legislators are sometimes happy to give it up because they get to take a pass on some of the more difficult questions. But on the whole, that trade-off is bad for democracy. The other side of that, though, of course, is that if the legislator is going to be inactive and, and unwilling to grapple with the major problems of a society, and perhaps people are suffering real harm as a result of that legislative inertia, is it not better to have the courts step in and take the question on and perhaps stop a, a harm that is occurring? So there, there's a reasonable debate here. There are some other, other arguments against the Charter. Some people point out that the Charter is, is, is nothing but negative rights protecting from the state, and it's not giving you positive rights. And they say that this is perhaps not an argument against the Charter, but certainly an argument the Charter didn't go far enough. And the reality is you don't, you don't do something like a Charter very often. So if you don't include something in a constitutionalized Bill of Rights the first time around, it's going to take a long time, almost certainly, for you to do it again, to, to take another stab at it. So the idea being that if you don't go far enough when you draft the charter, if you are a strong believer in positive rights, that there should be a, a constitutionalized right to a home or a constitutionalized right to a basic income or something like that, if you don't get it in the charter when it happens, you might uh, think, well, it would be better if we hadn't passed this at all, because at least we could still be arguing to get this important fundamental right in there. So that's an idea that also reasonable people hold about the Charter, that it didn't go far enough and it blocked the chance for something to go farther in the intervening years. Another criticism is that the Charter diverts resources away from the democratic process, that people raise money for constitutional challenges in court rather than lobbying the government for legislative change. And people also say, well, the judges are not familiar with the plight of the socioeconomically disadvantaged. And it is true, no doubt, that judges tend to, as a general rule, come from very privileged backgrounds. And even judges who haven't come from privilege have lived a life of privilege of being a member of the bar for 10 years and a successful and well thought of member of the bar at that. Nobody's going straight from true economic disadvantage into being a judge. It just can't happen in the Canadian system. There's also been a horrible history of underrepresentation of minorities amongst the judiciary. This tradition continues. There still has never been a person with Indigenous ancestry on the Supreme Court of Canada. The minority representation on the bench is far below demographic averages. And I just heard today that um, Donald Trump has filled 200 vacancies in the United States court system. Zero of those vacancies have been filled by a black person. So these arguments are fundamentally ideological in many ways. They get at your, your core values, the degree to which you think um, the charter goes too far, doesn't go far enough, protects minority rights against a legislator, or is a negative net effect on minority rights, the degree to which you think the legislator or the judiciary is the proper place to be deciding these issues. 
These are all things upon which reasonable people can disagree, and I understand arguments on both sides, and I don't think you'd be wrong to take any of the positions that I've outlined, or indeed many other positions are certainly valid in relation to the Constitution. I mean, that, that's an important thing about the Constitution. It belongs to everyone, and everyone has a right to think about it what they will and to debate it and to try to push the Constitution to be interpreted and applied in different ways and to even move to amend the Constitution. I mean, I personally am in favor of an amendment to the Constitution to increase the size of the Supreme Court of Canada so as to mandate that there be three judges with expertise in Indigenous law, that is, the law of Canada's First Nations. So it's, it's up to you to think of the Constitution as not just something that's set in stone, but something that needs constant attention, both through litigation and, and even possibly through amendment. And as lawyers, you're going to have special privileges in your ability to raise and be heard on constitutional issues. There's an added responsibility, I would posit, to be a caretaker for the Constitution when you take that oath when you're called to the bar in Canada. So with that bit of history and a bit of high-level overview, let's get into the Charter. Let's talk about first when and to what or whom does the Charter apply. And the first place to look is the Charter itself. Section 32.1 reads of the Charter, This Charter applies to the Parliament and Government of Canada in respect to all matters within the authority of Parliament, including all matters relating to the Yukon Territory and Northwest Territories, and to the legislature and government of each province in respect of all matters within the authority of the legislature of each province. That's helpful, but that doesn't really answer a lot of questions. A big question that came up early in the Charter was, well, does the Charter apply only to the governments listed? Only to Parliament and the legislature? What about the common law? What about private actors? What about to judges? Does it apply to judges? Are they part of the government of Canada? And the seminal case on the application of the charter to both the courts and the common law is called Dolphin Delivery. And this was a case involving a union that engaged in secondary picketing during a strike. So what you had in essence was you had the a union representing Purilator, a big delivery company. They were on strike against Purilator. Dolphin Delivery was a company contracting with Purilator. Their employees were not on strike. The union picketed Dolphin Delivery. This is secondary picketing, not picketing your employer, but picketing somebody for doing business with your employer. Dolphin Delivery sues on the basis of inducing breach of contract and they obtained an injunction to restrain this secondary picketing. The union appealed and argued that the injunction violated its charter right to free expression or the charter right of the members to free expression. So does the charter apply to private parties? And by extension, does it apply to an order of the court that regulates private parties? And the Supreme Court of Canada said no. And this is again very early, 1986. And the court said, no, Section 32 refers only to the government, Section 32 of the Charter. It refers only to the government and parliament and the legislatures. And the court interpreted government as the executive. A court order is not 
governmental action, the court decided, and therefore the injunction was not subject to the charter. Furthermore, the court said that the charter does not apply directly to the common law. So when the judges make their decisions between two private parties, they are not bound to apply the charter in those decisions. And this is the the really key thing to take away. The charter applies when the government does something, either through the executive or legislation. When there's an executive action or legislation, it must comply with the charter. When two private parties have a dispute, the charter does not apply. And when those parties go to court to resolve that dispute, the judge's decision also does not have the charter apply to it. And you could see how if it were otherwise, if private parties didn't have the charter apply to their relations, that would be severely undercut if judges were obliged to apply the charter when adjudicating disputes. So big, big takeaway, the charter does not apply directly to private disputes. The charter does apply to legislation and it does apply to the executive. However, there are a few important caveats to that proposition, to the proposition that the charter applies to legislation and to the executive, but not to disputes between private parties. One is that many disputes between private parties will be regulated in large part by legislation. Take, for example, landlord-tenancy relationships. This is, in one sense, a contract that a landlord has with his or her tenant, but this is a contract that is strictly regulated in BC under the Residential Tenancy Act, and there are a number of protections in that legislation provided to tenants. That legislation must comply with the charter. If, to use a hypothetical, the Residential Tenancy Act were to say that people above a certain age could be evicted for no reason, that would infringe the Charter Guarantee of Equality, which protects against discrimination based on age. That section of the legislation could be subject to a charter challenge despite the fact that that legislation governs a relationship between private parties. So you want to think, okay, legislation must comply with the charter. The executive and its actions must comply with the charter. Private relationships are not subject to the charter, except to the extent that the legislation which applies to those relationships is subject to the charter. So what I mean when I say private relationships are not subject to the charter, what I mean is if, for example, your landlord were to come to you and say, you can't have this election sign in your window, that might violate a number of statutes. That might be illegal. But you couldn't say that that violates your right to freedom of expression because your landlord as a private entity as a private person, is not directly subject to the charter. Similarly, if your employer were to tell you 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 can't wear a button that says Black Lives Matter, which is something that's coming up quite regularly now in the news, 
There might be a legal avenue for you to take, but it wouldn't be to say that the employer, a private person, violated your charter rights. Private individuals do not have to comply with the charter. Private individuals don't have to avoid limiting other people's rights of expression or treat people with equality. There are other legal mechanisms that deal with private actors, human rights legislation, for example, but the charter does not apply directly. Okay, so you're getting the general framework. The charter applies to legislation. It applies to acts of the executive. It does not apply to private parties directly. However, it does apply when legislation governs relationships between private parties, at least in the sense that that legislation must itself comply with the charter. There's one more nuance to what I've all said. So, of course, the idea from Dolphin Delivery is if we're going to not have private interactions, if your interactions with your landlord and with your employer are not going to be directly subject to the charter, we're not going to allow a sort of backdoor into getting the charter to apply by saying that the courts must only issue decisions in disputes between private individuals that are compliant with the charter. That would be a sort of a backdoor way to have the charter apply. However, and this is an important thing that I'll say now and then I'll give you another case on also, the charter is an expression of the fundamental values of Canada. Courts in developing the common law are expected to develop that common law in a way that will reflect the fundamental values of Canada. Canadian courts are expected to develop the common law to reflect fundamental values. So therefore, if the common law is inconsistent with charter values, those values that we can learn from the charter, that's strong evidence that the common law may need to change. So we'll come back to this idea in a second when we talk about the Grant and Torstar decision. But for now, I want to get into the question of who is the government for the purposes of the charter? When I say the executive, how do you define that for the charter? It's a bit of a tricky question. There are some people who it's quite obvious that they're government, that they're the executive, but there are some more borderline cases and generally, there are two classes of people or things who are going to be government for the purposes of the charter's application. Government actors and government action. Government actors and government action. What's the difference? Well, government actors are these entities which are a part of government itself. And everything about a government actor is subject to the charter. Government action might be done by a non-governmental entity, and that non-governmental entity won't generally be subject to the charter in everything it does. When it acts as an employer outside of its government action, it will still be a private entity. However, to the extent that it is implementing a government program or exercising coercive statutory authority, it will be subject to the charter. And I'll share a chart that sets this out. It'll be in the notes and I'll discuss it during our discussion period. And what the chart shows is when we're talking about government actors, we're talking about, as I say, three things. Government, entities controlled by the government, 
and entities exercising government functions. Those are all going to be considered government actors. At first of those, government is very straightforward. What I mean there is simply an entity that is obviously part of the government. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Canada. The Ministry of Health and Food Inspectors. These types of things are just obviously government. They say they're government. They do a government function. They're simply government. Where things get more tricky is where you have an entity that is controlled by the government or exercises government functions, but which to some extent purports to be independent of government. For entities controlled by government, you can think of these crown corporations that exist in Canada. So for example, electricity in British Columbia is controlled by BC Hydro. They have a monopoly. They're the only player in electricity distribution in British Columbia. You don't have a choice. You go to BC Hydro to get electricity. And they're created under a statutory authority. They have a statutory power that gives them this exclusive jurisdiction over electricity. However, they are run as a corporation. They're a crown corporation. They are nevertheless government for the purposes of the charter. They are controlled by government. They are subject to the charter in what they do. And the other example is entities exercising government functions. This is subtly different from being controlled by the government because you could set up a system where a private entity takes over what is essentially and fundamentally a government function. If you do so, the courts won't let you escape the charter. And a great example is private prisons. Now, there's not nearly the same prevalence of private prisons in Canada. In fact, there is, to my understanding, only one that has ever existed, and it's, it's since reverted from private back to government control. But in the United States, private prisons is a major industry. There are many private prisons. Something like 8% of people in prison in the United States are in private prisons, and the private prison industry is a very lucrative industry for the businesses who are involved. Now, private prisons, regardless of how much they were controlled by the government, if the government were to say, look, private prisons, you run everything. We're just going to hire you to house our inmates, and that's it. If the government purported to exercise no measure of control over the private prison, it would still be subject to the charter because imprisoning someone is an essentially government function. This is not something that private individuals can do, imprison each other. It's an essentially government function. And so regardless of a degree of control, the charter would apply. So when you're thinking government actors, you think, okay, first there's the straight up government, the health inspectors, the people regulating the fish, the people regulating the wildlife. These people are exercising government function under government control and purporting to be government. There's just no question that they're government. When I worked at the Department of Justice, there's no question that I was 
a part of the government and that the Department of Justice is just subject to the charter in its internal operations. Then you have the entities controlled by the government and you think the crown corporations. These are entities that, while they are corporate in their structure, the government controls their operations. And therefore, while selling power isn't necessarily a government function, I mean, you could have a private power company and that wouldn't be surprising. That wouldn't be outside of the scope of what you might think would be in private industry. When the government controls a corporation, that corporation is government. And then you can think, finally, these entities exercising government functions. You think private prisons. It wouldn't matter if there was control or not. That's a government function. And if the government were to try to privatize prisons by contracting to a private company, that private company would be subject to the charter. And so if you're found to be a government actor, you're found to be government and your operations are generally subject to the charter. The other way that you can have the charter apply is to government action. And this is where the entity itself, the corporation, isn't government. It isn't in its entirety controlled by the government. It isn't in its entirety exercising government function. But to the extent it is implementing a government program or exercising some coercive statutory authority, it is subject to the charter. So you can think about the government in this modern age dealing with complex problems very often by contracting, often with very large entities. So if, for example, the government of Canada were to decide to contract with a major consulting operation to run the census, a census is an important part of governance. You need to know who is in the country so you can allocate representation in the legislatures, allocate resources. And let's say the government says, look, we don't want to tool up a major operation to run the census this year. We think that we could use PricewaterhouseCoopers and they could do a better job. They could use more modern technology, whatever it was. Well, that wouldn't make PricewaterhouseCooper government. It's a major multinational consulting firm with operations in you know, many, if not most, countries in the world. It doesn't suddenly become part of the Canadian government. However, that also doesn't mean that the government could contract out of its charter obligations in relation to the census. Rather, to the extent that that private entity is implementing a government program, it is subject to the charter. It will not be everything about the company. It probably will not be its labor relations generally that will be subject to the charter. However, in the choices it makes in implementing that government program, it will have to comply with the charter. The final way in which government action is subject to the charter is when an entity exercises coercive statutory authority. And so there's an example that everyone here likely will become familiar with, and that is the Law Society of British Columbia or the Law Society of other provinces in Canada. These are independent organizations, and indeed the idea that lawyers are independent and self-regulating, not regulated by government, but regulated by members of the profession themselves, is 
at times controversial, but is is protected and cherished by many lawyers who view it as an important condition to lawyers being able to be an effective check on the government. You know, the government can't discipline lawyers for doing something the government doesn't like through the professional regulator. Rather, it's going to be the profession itself will take care of untoward lawyers. So lawyers are a self-regulating profession. You will not be regulated by the BC government or the Canada government. When you're a lawyer, you'll be regulated by the Law Society of British Columbia. However, the Law Society has coercive statutory powers that it is given by the government. I can be subject to search. I can be demanded to produce my computer files to the Law Society. And that's on the basis of statutory authority, which allows the Law Society to do so. The Law Society has a power to fine and to suspend or disbar me. These powers stem from the Legal Profession Act, British Columbia legislation, which explicitly gives the Law Society the power to apply for an order of seizure, to issue fines and suspend licenses to practice. When the Law Society is exercising this coercive statutory authority, it is subject to the Charter. However, if you work at the Law Society, if you're a researcher working at the Law Society, and you get into a dispute with your management, you can't turn to the Charter in the way that somebody working at the Department of Justice could. The Law Society as an entity is independent of government. The Law Society, when it exercises coercive statutory powers, is nevertheless, though, subject to the Charter. So you want to think big picture. There are government actors and there are government actions that are subject to the Charter. The government actors are just the things that you think of as the government generally. They are entities controlled by the government, and they are entities that are exercising government functions. There's government action, and this is either the implementation of government programs, you've contracted out a program, or a private entity has been given a coercive statutory authority to go search or to seize or to fine. While it's exercising that authority or implementing that program, that private actor is engaging in government action and is subject to the charter. That's the big picture idea on who is subject to the charter. So you want to think, just to recap, the legislature, in the legislation it passes, the legislation is subject to the charter, can be struck down if it's inconsistent with the charter. The government, the government actors and this government action is subject to the charter. Private entities, private parties in their private disputes are not directly subject to the charter. However, the legislation that governs those disputes must comply with the charter and the common law that applies to those disputes must evolve in a manner that's consistent with the charter. So we have a couple cases on these points that I want to go through. The first is McKinney and Guelph, and it asks the question of, are universities subject to the charter? And you know, a classic place where you're going to have this question is in relation to labor relations. So here you had a university with a mandatory retirement age. It said faculty has to leave at, I think it was 75. Senior faculty says, that violates my equality right under Section 15 of the Charter, a right we'll get to next class. 
That's discrimination on the basis of age. I want to challenge this policy as unconstitutional and in violation of the Charter. The court said, well, the first hurdle we'll have to see if you overcome is establishing that the Charter applies to the university, in this case, Guelph University. And the courts looked and they said, well, universities in Ontario were created by statute. So that's a factor in favor of these being government. Statutes indeed set out the university's powers, functions, privileges, and governing structure. They also note that universities are heavily funded by the government with strings attached, tuition rates, etc. Furthermore, universities in Ontario are run by a governing body, and same as here, a board of governors, and a minority of members to the board of governors is appointed by the province. However, the rest are appointed by faculty, students, etc. So these are kind of the, the factors which are at play in this question of whether the charter is going to apply to the universities. The court then sets out in an important discussion, why doesn't the charter apply to private actors? Why couldn't a private company be subject to a charter challenge against a mandatory retirement age? And the court says, look, several reasons. One, this is the historical trend for these constitutionalized Bill of Rights. They apply to government and not to private actors. Second, they say, well, the degree to which a private actor needs to be constrained is somewhat less than the degree to which a government needs to be constrained because despite the damage that a private actor can do, it is not the same as what a government can do to infringe on individual freedom. Private entities are powerful, but ultimately they're regulated by the government, can be regulated by the government through legislation. And then if all action was subject to the charter, you'd have a problem where individual freedom, you know, your individual right to be a jerk, to say things that are offensive, to do things which may you know, harm other people, is limited. That may be a positive outcome, some would say, but at the same time, one of the costs of freedom is tolerating some unsavory behavior. You can't be simply free to do one set of things. You know, you have to take the good with the bad if you're going to have freedom is one of the ideas. And it would also overwhelm the courts if every private dispute now had a constitutional challenge that could be associated with it. So the court said, look, we, we recognize why it's important that private entities are not subject to the charter. And now we have to decide, does the university fall within government? And they say, look, this is going to be fundamentally a control test for this university. We don't, it's not government. Like, it's not clearly government. It's as the Department of Fisheries and Oceans or Department of Justice is. It's not the Department of the University of Guelph. And education is not a essentially government activity in its fundamental nature. Clearly, it's private education. So if we're thinking about, is it a government actor sub such that its retirement age is subject to the charter, we're going to be in that second question, that control test. And the court says, let's look at all of the circumstances to see how much control the government has over the entity. And in this case, the court says the government can't really control universities. They run their own affairs. They spend their money mostly how they want. The government appoints a minority to the Board of Governors. It's not doesn't have control of the Board of Governors. And there's furthermore a sort of fundamental academic freedom 
that's enhanced by having independence from the government. So the court says no. Universities are not government for the purposes of the charter. Now, interestingly, public schools are government, and it's not even very close. The government exercises substantial control over public schools. Public schools don't make individualized decisions free of government. In between universities and public schools, you might consider colleges. And there has been another case where the court said one particular college, Douglas College, did not have the same independence from government on the facts, looking at how the institution was actually run. And as a result, the court said that Douglas College is government. So it's a fact-driven analysis for every institution if there's a challenge. And if you can show indicia which suggests that this institution is, is controlled by the government, it will be subject to the charter. However, if like the University of Guelph, and indeed like the University of British Columbia, and like the major research institutions in Canada, you can show this independence from government, you will not be considered a government actor for the purposes of the application of the charter. The next case we have is the Greater Vancouver Transportation Authority and Canadian Federation of Students case. And this is a question about whether advertising on the sides of buses is subject to the charter. This case concerned advertisements in Vancouver. So the Vancouver Transportation Authority is known as TransLink, and it operates public transportation in BC along with uh, the British Columbia Transit. TransLink is the Vancouver area, not just Vancouver, but the lower mainland. And BC Transit is designated by the British Columbia Transit Act as an agent of the government, and its board of directors is appointed by the lieutenant governor and council. Lieutenant Governor and Council has the statutory power to manage BC Transit's affairs and operations. And then under the Greater Vancouver Transportation Act, the local government appoints 12 of 15 directors on TransLink's board, approves its strategic transportation plan and bylaws relating to taxes and levies. So you have some strong indicia of control. And what you had in this case was a federation of students and the BC Teachers Federation wanted to buy advertising, encouraging people to vote and express concern about changes to public education. They wanted to buy ads on the sides of buses. Well, TransLink had a policy of not allowing political advertising on public transit vehicles. So the question was whether the federation of students and the BC Teachers Federation could invoke the charter right of freedom of expression and force TransLink to sell it the advertising. So the question was, are these entities, TransLink and BC Transit, government? The court said yes. They said, look, BC Transit is a statutory body designated by legislation as an agent of the government. It just can't operate autonomously from the provincial government. The government has substantial control over its day-to-day -day activities. And TransLink is substantially controlled by another government entity, the Greater Vancouver Regional District. And it's therefore also a government entity. And so the, the principle you get from this is that if the government were to sell advertising, it would be certainly bound by the charter. And the government cannot shirk its charter obligations by simply conferring its powers on another entity that it controls. 
it has the control over these entities. The government has a control over these entities. Therefore, it must meet its charter obligations. And so if you want to have a takeaway, what is the test for control to determine if something is a government actor on the control test? Does the government exercise substantial control over its day-to-day -day activities? In the TransLink case about advertising, the court said yes. So those are two cases that I want you to remember, and they're about how you can become a government actor through that control test. Remember, though, it's not the only way. You can also just be government, be a plain entity of government, or you can be not under government control, but exercising a government function, like imprisoning people, something that private people just simply cannot do. And in that situation, you will also be subject to the charter. Okay, the final case I want to talk about in this podcast is Grant and Torstar. And this case relates to that question I alluded to earlier of what do you do when the charter and the common law come into conflict? What do you do when you look at the common law and you say, my goodness, this doesn't seem to comport with the charter? And as I said, the answer is not that the charter applies directly to the common law. You can't say the common law is unconstitutional. However, the courts should consider whether the common law needs to be updated so as to better reflect the fundamental values of Canadian society as those values are shown in the charter. And you could always make an argument that the values of a society have changed and that the common law needs to be updated to reflect those values. But when you can point to the charter and say that we have constitutionalized these values, that's a very strong argument in favor of your interpretation. So in Grant and Torstar, what you had was the law of defamation, the common law of defamation. Now, defamation has always had a tension with free speech. Defamation is the idea you can sue somebody for saying something that they can't prove to be true about you that could tend to diminish you and your reputation. Not being able to say something if you can't prove it to be true is contrary to free speech. You know, we want ideas to be able to be put out there, to be engaged with without having to put everyone to a strict truth test. Or at least that's the theory. So in this case, the Toronto Star, that's Tor Star, the Toronto Star, that's the company that runs the Toronto Star, one of the bigger papers in the biggest city in Canada, had published a story about the plaintiff and the trial court found that statement to be defamatory. So you have a newspaper publishing a story, getting hit with a defamation suit, and ultimately being found at trial to be liable to damages because of a common law defamation action. And the Supreme Court of Canada, in the key passage in that case, says, the common law, though not directly subject to charter scrutiny where disputes between private parties are concerned, may be modified to bring it into harmony with the charter. The court there found the common law of defamation did not give adequate weight to the charter value of freedom of expression and should be modified to introduce a new defense of responsible communication on matters of public interest. So this idea of charter values is the idea that the charter has constitutionalized some fundamental values and when there is a discretion for the court to exercise 
in its evolution of the common law, in its application of the common law, it should strive to bring the common law into accord with those values. So that's the end of the first podcast of Lecture 6, where we talk about the Charter, what's in the Charter, and where the Charter applies. You want to remember, in a big picture, what's in the Charter. You want to remember what's sort of in the Charter, but not really. Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, which is part of the Constitution Act 1982, but not part of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and therefore not explicitly subject to Section 1 and the limitation of rights, which we're going to get to in the next podcast. You want to think about some of these arguments for and against the Charter. You want to think about the fact that the Charter doesn't confer positive economic rights, doesn't protect the environment directly, and doesn't apply to private actors and private disputes. You want to think that the Charter doesn't apply directly to the courts or directly to the common law as decreed by the courts. However, that the common law will be subject to development at all times, and one basis upon which it can be developed is to make the common law accord with charter values. And then you want to think, to whom does the charter apply? Well, to legislation and to government actors and government action. Government actors are government entities controlled by government and entities exercising government functions. And if you're one of those three things, everything you do your labor relations, your mandatory retirement age, all that subject to the charter. If you're not a government entity, you're not a, you're, you're a private company, but you are contracted to do a government function or you exercise a coercive statutory power, search and seizure, power to find, something like that, to the extent you are doing that government action, implementing that government program, exercising that coercive authority, you're subject to the charter. We're going to get into, in the next class, a very interesting question about limitation on rights in Section 1.